Mark 1. Conversations at the speed of sound. Earlier last year, we had the 100th celebration for the Air Force. And as a tour guide, several of us were assigned various people to go around on a particular day. And I was uh, in a group of about a dozen when one of the ladies said uh, that her um, uh, father had been in 10 Squadron. And uh, of course, without thinking too much, I said, oh goodness, what's his name? I might know him. And she said, Mick Smart. And I said, no, I don't know the gentleman. Uh, when did he fly? To which she replied, he was on Sunderland's in England. And I was just completely taken away and said, my goodness, that means he'd have to be a hundred years old. Whereupon she said, no, actually he's 103 and he's here today. And I have a photograph to prove it because I made sure that she went up and introduced me to this gentleman who was 103 years old, but you would swear was no more than 80. A fantastic, fantastic gentleman. The voice there of QAM tour guide, Mr. Val Buckmanis. Hello, and welcome to another Meet the Tour Guides episode of Mac One, the podcast of the Queensland Air Museum Caloundra. My name is Gary Hills, and I'm proud to say that I am a QAM volunteer, and I will be your host for this brief, but I hope you will find, as I did, Fascinating introduction to Val Buckmanis. You heard Val there relating one of those magic moments that happen at QAM quite often, and usually without any warning. Someone will come in to the front counter in Hangar 1, they'll be welcomed by our friendly customer service volunteers, they'll pay their entry fee. We pretty much survive on entry fees and donations. And then they make their way around the two hectares of aircraft and engines on display. Now sometimes someone will get chatting with them, and they will turn out to be the most interesting person you have ever met. Also, just a correction there, Val mentioned the centenarian tail gunner's name as Mick Smart. In fact, Val corrected himself after we had finished recording. The gentleman's name is Mick Scott. And let me shout out to you, Mr. Scott, sir. If you happen to be listening, or someone who knows you is listening, thank you for visiting the QAM last year. And sir, if you'd like to tell us your story, Sunderland Flying Boats, Number 10 Squadron, England, World War II, goodness, we would love to hear from you. Our email address is QAMMuck1, that's O-N-E for one, QAMMuck1, at gmail.com. So I picked up the conversation with Val Buckmanis in Hangar 2 at QAM. Val Buckmanis, thank you for talking to me today. Uh, How long have you been associated with QAM? Just over a year, Gary. Um, I was in the Air Force from 1965 until 1980 
and when I left the Air Force I went on to a couple of other careers uh, and apart from the odd reunion the Air Force was just something that was in the past but I made the mistake of bringing my grandson out here <laughs> and the tour guide that went around with me said goodness you know more than I do sign here <laughs> or words to that effect so very shortly after that I was actually signed up as a guide that doesn't mean that I know everything but I was uh, keen enough and have had some experience so that's how it came about where were you born and where did you grow up my parents and my heritage is Latvian which uh, you might gather by the name Pesvel. Uh, it's actually short for Veldus, which is quite a common Latvian name. My parents suffered the uh, various uh, aspects of being pushed and pulled mm. through uh, World War II. Mm. And uh, we wound up in Germany, where I was born. And then, because we were refugees, wound up in Australia in 1950. And I joined the Air Force in 1965, because I thought it was a good career. And while I'm saying that, whoever's listening to this podcast, if you're young, please consider the military as a career. I could not encourage it strongly enough. There are so many different avenues and the things that you do and the people that you will meet will last you and benefit you a lifetime. So why did you choose the RAAF of the options that were available? I guess because of the war experience of my parents, my mother was very, very anti-military and yet uh, I'd always been keen on the flying aspect and I thought that perhaps if I picked a career along that line but wasn't too threatening, then my parents would agree. Uh, and originally I chose engineering and uh, did two years of that before I transferred to aircrew. Okay, well, uh, the, uh, the backstory there is amazing, Val. I'd love to explore that a little more. Let's maybe come back to that. Let's talk about your flying career. So you began as an engineer. That's correct. Um, but I never completed the, uh, the requirements. And uh, at that time, one of my bosses was an aeroelectronics officer and uh, that seemed to be uh, a good alternative career. So having failed engineering, uh, not very badly, but enough uh, to uh, no longer be selected, uh, he suggested that I would make a good AEO. Maybe he was biased, but I did. <laughs> so for our listeners, explain what kind of work an AEO does. AE stands for Air Electronics and uh, it would probably be appropriate to uh, point out that there are people of various categories that fly. You'd probably, or people would probably be uh, familiar that pilots generally have a brevet or an insignia of two wings. Other aircrew, depending on what they are, have half a wing and generally there are some letters within that going back to uh, again the war years where uh, G for gunner and uh, W for wireless operator and we had the insignia 
AE for electronics because electronics were becoming the, uh, the front line then in aircraft and sensors just as computers are now, electronics was going to be the future. And indeed it has, has been, has it not? Uh, when you think back to the computers and the electronics of the 1960s and what was capable then uh, with, uh, for example, our F-111 compared to you know what's developed since then. So it's been a very exciting time to be working around electronics, I imagine. It certainly was, and uh, our uh, basic course uh, was uh, 15 months, three months then at sale, um, and 12 months uh, at the School of Air, uh, sorry, School of Radio at Laverton at that time. And uh, we learnt uh, basic radio theory uh, and also practical hands-on stuff like uh, Morse code, which mm -hmm. I still know to this day because uh, the early communications were still in Morse code. Um, typing and, uh, of course, uh, the basis for uh, the whole concept which was uh, anti-submarine warfare so um, that's what we were trained to perform. And what aircraft did you serve in? Our training was done on the C-47 Dakota and we have one behind me and I still have a very soft spot for that. <laughs> uh, Laverton set one of those up with radios along the side that we uh, would tune up and go flying with and send messages back to the ground. And obviously uh, even the uninitiated would know that Morse code on the ground is probably a little easier than when Morse code is trying to be sent from an aeroplane that's <laughs> bouncing around. Of course these days we no longer do Morse code apart from the basic navigation of uh, identifying various stations but it's a skill that I still have. Every week on a Tuesday and a Wednesday the workshop and maintenance volunteers wearing their high-vis yellow shirts can be seen about the museum busily engaged in various projects and tasks. Now, Val and I began our talk in Hangar 2 on a lovely, peaceful, quiet Tuesday morning until two lawnmowers fired up nearby and made things, well, just a little bit noisy. A shout-out, by the way, to the volunteers who come in faithfully week after week to keep the place looking respectable and tidy. A two-hectare property does not maintain itself, as I'm sure you can imagine. Anyway, as you'll hear, Val and I struggled on valiantly for a bit, but finally relocated to continue talking in a quiet corner of the museum. When we first got to the squadron and graduated, uh, we had never flown on the Neptune. So um, it was organised that uh, we would all partake at one time or another uh, in groups of about three and they went through the whole procedure of a briefing as to what we had to do for pre-flights and generally what a mission might entail. I always remember my first one because uh, the guys, unbeknownst to me, had changed their wings around 
and uh, so when they got in the briefing room, one guy stood up and said, well, I haven't been captain for a while, I want to be captain today. And the other bloke said, well, that's not fair because you were captain last time. <laughs> I said, well, you can, you can take the aeroplane off if you like, but I still want to be captain. And uh, listen, Bill, uh, you reckon you can navigate this thing around for a bit because uh, we're not going very far. And this went on for about 10 minutes. And the three of us that were brand new buddies thought, oh yeah, they're having us on. Except that when we got out to the aeroplane, of course, these guys got into exactly those positions because we didn't know that they'd swapped wings. The captain was in fact the captain and the navigator was the navigator. And for a very brief period of time we thought, what sort of cowboy outfit are we in? <laughs> it was a setup. So you went straight from the C-47 to the Neptune, is that right? That's correct. And uh, so that's maritime surveillance, anti-submarine and search and rescue? Exactly. Did you take part in any search and rescue missions? Quite a few, quite a few. But uh, I think because submarines at the moment are front and centre on various uh, news aspects, it's probably uh, appropriate to actually point out what a submarine does and why it's such a threat. The first submarine came into existence in the American Civil War and it was very simple and not very good. But basically the aspect of a submarine is that it can hide in water and there's a lot of water around. Of course, over time, they developed things like torpedoes and mines and these submarines that could hide could sink ships. Yes. Uh... Uh, basically, uh, there is still a, a concept, and it's true that a submarine uh, is very, very formidable because it can sink ships, it can hide well, uh, and torpedoes are a big threat, and they are. However, ever since uh, nuclear propulsion came into the fore in about the 1960s, they found that they could also put missiles on submarines and that those missiles could in fact be launched from underwater and go a very, very long way. Hence your Polaris ballistic missile fire, uh, which was the first one was the George Washington, if I remember. However, the Russians were very quick to follow and they also developed nuclear technology and the concept of now trying to locate a threat underwater that never came up became a very, very big and uh, different ball game. They found, and this was well known from some time before that, that sound travels for a very long way underwater, and that's low frequency sound. So the methodology that was being developed and used more and more was to listen. And the way that we uh, did that in the Western world was to uh, use what was called sonoboys. Sonoboys are expendable transceivers, uh, a cylindrical object that you drop from the aeroplane and a hydrophone would go into the ocean and listen and a radio would transmit that information back to the aeroplane and my job was to analyse that noise. Uh, because there's a lot of noise down there, 
that analysis, of course, is not as simple as it sounds. But it was the method. Having detected something of interest, we then used other methodology to uh, localise it down to eventually uh, supposedly be close enough where we could attack the target. So as a, a civilian who's watched movies over the years, um, I have the impression that a good sonar operator who's listening to these sounds with computer assistance is able to even determine which particular submarine they're listening to. Is that, is that factual? That is factual. Uh, is it easy? No, but it is factual and it depends on the ability of individual operators. Uh, we have here at the Air Museum the Wessex. Uh, it used a uh, transponder that was lowered into the water and the operators would physically listen. I've been uh, with these guys on courses and I was amazed at their ability to pick sound, mm. to analyse how many blades a propeller had mm. as to uh, whether it was more likely to be a merchant ship or a passenger ship. Uh, I started to develop some of those skills, but they left me for dead. So you're in the Neptune and you're doing uh, all of these drills and training for listening for submarines, dropping sonar boys. Uh, search and rescue obviously becomes a big part of the, the role, doesn't it? Because there are no alternatives many times for these kinds of aircraft to be out there. Can you tell us some of the search and rescue experiences you had? Certainly. Uh, obviously, uh, as you've rightly analysed, if uh, we can uh, find a submarine, then uh, those same methods uh, can be used in some sort of search and rescue aspect. And we certainly did. Um, ships that founded uh, back in uh, the early 70s, uh, we were involved in uh, finding uh, the La Bolsa that came across from Argentina to uh, and shortly, uh, just off the coast here at uh, Mooloolaba. Really? And yeah, we found that. Uh, the uh, P3 Orion that we have out here is the same aircraft that rescued Tony Bullimore in the southern Indian Ocean. So yes, it is a role and uh, some of those uh, rescue aspects are real. He was a round-the-world yachtsman, I think. That's correct. Yeah. How many years did you serve in Neptunes? Uh, seven. I was on 10 Squadron uh, with the Neptunes for seven years, which was probably a little longer than most of the others. I didn't mind it. I uh, spent some 2,000 hours uh, that I logged on that aircraft and from there went to East Sail as an instructor before I, back on Orion's at Edinburgh. So the number 10 Squadron, that's at Townsville, at uh, Garbutt. Did you fly in 277, our Neptune? Absolutely, uh, and uh, I know that your listeners can't see, but I carry around a folder with me, and as part of, uh, shall we say, establishing my credibility, I show them a photograph uh, of 277 and my crew. That was taken on Cocos Island in 1971. And that's the very same aeroplane that we have at the back. And what were you doing in Cocos Island at that point? We did quite a bit of uh, surveillance in the Indian Ocean uh, at that time. 
I think we still do. When I look at 277 out the back and I point out to people that uh, it's a unique aeroplane in that it's both propeller driven and has two jet engines and they're astounded. Mm. The rationale behind that of course was that as the aeroplane developed and had more and more equipment put in it, uh, the poor pilots in the pilot seat found that they couldn't get this aeroplane off the ground very easily. So the engines were upgraded to as much as they could and eventually jets had to be put on as well because it got heavier and heavier and heavier. Yeah. Well, I'm actually putting together an episode featuring the Neptune and the restoration thereof and that will be uh, I plan sometime in uh, April to have that episode come out. I've spoken to all the guys on the team who were working on the re on the Neptune and uh, this is a fascinating story and I'm so pleased to be able to pull together some of these aspects and to know that you also uh, flew and uh, served in 277 as well. Absolutely. Um, the other thing that uh, your listeners uh, may not appreciate is that the aeroplane itself is not a very comfortable aeroplane. <laughs> it has a crew of 10, two pilots, three navigators and five electronics officers uh, but there is virtually no place in the aeroplane that you can stand up. Uh, probably the only area is in the ordnance section at the very rear. And of course, uh, the aeroplane flying out of Townsville, it can get hot, it can get smelly, um, and generally unpleasant. But, there's always a but, Gary, uh, some of the best friends that I have were made at that time mm. when the bloke beside you has his elbow in your ear you better get along <laughs> otherwise that job is not for you and I always do recall the instance where after a particularly uh, long trip somebody went down the back to make a sandwich and it was traditional to pass it up to the cockpit for the pilots to eat first by the time it got to the front, there was a bite out of every corner. <laughs> I, I was fortunate enough to have a bit of a look through the interior of the Neptune. The guys kindly showed me and I took my microphone with me and tried to describe what was happening as I was uh, moving around. I don't know whether I'll use it because I'm not sure in a, uh, without a visual medium whether that's going to be of interest to others. But I tried my best to convey what you're saying. It, it, it's cramped, it's tightly packed, um, it's dark in some places, and I imagine if you're... Uh, did you do search and rescue at night, or was it always a daytime operation? No, it could well be at night. Depending on uh, what you were looking for, if we suspected that the survivors uh, would be in a life raft with flares, for instance, mm. then uh, it would be logical for them to let off a flare and that, of course, would uh, show up better at night. To invite that, we would periodically let off a flare as well. Ours would be green, and we would be looking for a red flare in reply. And that did happen. Okay. That did happen. You know, you, you and others that I've spoken to talk about the affection, you know, for not just for the crew members you flew with, but for these aircraft, you know, you, you formed a bond of some kind with them serving and working in them for so many years. Uh, that affection, how does that affect you now when you're showing people around here in the museum? 
Uh, I guess in the first instance, it establishes your credibility. Um, You're not just talking about a machine that you've learnt about from a book. Uh, But the other thing is that you can actually uh, relate specific stories and make it interesting. Uh, If I could again go back to one of the earlier flights, uh, we've probably all in our life heard about uh, the young apprentice being sent off to get a left-handed screwdriver or to go and sit somewhere for a long wait. Or get some striped paint. All of those sort of things. Well, when I first started flying, I was a bit green. And at one stage, the uh, navigator called up and I was down the back of the aeroplane. He said, Val, come forward and jump on that back step. The uh, Doppler's stuck. And I went, yeah, right, know about that. Well, the next thing he came scrambling over the uh, wing, thumped me in the, in the shoulder, jumped up and down on the back step, freed the Doppler because that was actually a fix. <laughs> Oh dear. You weren't being had. <laughs> so let's, let's move on to Orion's then. Uh, what, what service did you see in Orion's and what about 760, our Orion? No, uh, my time was before that. Uh, the B models were with 11 Squadron. Uh, I was certainly uh, on those for 1,000 hours airborne. And uh, we, well, can I go back a step there? Mm. Stepping from uh, the Neptune era into the Orion is like moving from a Toyota Corolla into a Lamborghini. All of a sudden, there is room. It's air-conditioned. It's comfortable. Um, and if I'm allowed to there is a toilet. <laughs> there was not a toilet in the Neptune. Um, so, yes, the, the height of luxury. Um, it was a good aeroplane. Um, excellent aeroplane, still is. I believe, well, the New Zealanders are still flying them. And I think we may still have two of them in a, um, a research role in Australia. You describe your experience with aircraft in very personal terms, which is understandable. Would you say there was a favourite for you from your years in the air, a a favourite place to be and a favourite thing to be doing? I guess I had a very soft spot for the Dakota. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed the the simplicity and uh, the, the flying aspect. I did have the fortunate... Uh, aspect of flying personally uh, piloting one from the bottom of Tasmania up the west coast uh, back to Victoria because the the pilot at that time was an old friend of mine and and he was sick of flying it so uh, at 1000 feet with the sun streaming in and flying this thing up Tasmania uh, was just one of those moments that uh, will indelibly be uh, impinged on my memory. Yeah, beautiful. From your years in aviation, have, have we missed some stories that you wanted to tell? Thinking back, uh, going from uh, Neptune's to uh, Orion's and uh, relating the story about jumping up and down on the back step... 
Um, when I got to uh, 11th Squadron at Edinburgh, we had an American exchange captain, and it was already well known that he only ever had half cups of coffee because he didn't want to spill them. Right. I was uh, down the back when he ordered a coffee, and I knew about that, and it was a paper cup. So I got out some scissors and carefully cut it in half and filled it to the brim. <laughs> Sent it down to the front. And the next thing I heard on the intercom was, No, no, I didn't mean that. <laughs> Thank you so much, Val. Please come down and visit us at the Queensland Air Museum. If you come in on a Tuesday, make a point of uh, introducing yourself to Val. We'd love to have you here. We'd love to show you around. Thanks, mate. My pleasure. You know, one of the things I love about our tour guides is that every single one of them that I've spoken with happily relates tales of things that they have learned from our visitors. Our guides are not lecturers. They have a deep and long experience in some area of aviation, but they don't know everything and they don't pretend to. They're here to give you the best experience possible when you visit, but they are also listening as well as talking. The other thing I love, and please, I need to emphasize this point. There is no additional cost to hook up with one of our tour guides, and they do not expect and nor will they accept tips. If you feel so inclined and you've had a really worthwhile experience, you may, of course, make a donation to the QAM. That will help keep things going here. But the guides are volunteers, and with the exception of the unique F-111 experience, which you do need to book and pay for, the guides are here free of charge and love nothing better than to help you get the most out of your visit. So that's our episode. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find our little discussion group with photographs and videos and comments about each episode in the Facebook private closed group, the Mac One Hanger. Just search for Mac One Hanger, that's O-N-E for one, on Facebook, and we will happily include you in that little growing community. Also, as always, if you're interested in more details, more photographs, more of the history of the particular aircraft and exhibits that we discuss in an episode, go to our website at qam.com.au and click on Collections. And there you will find a very detailed provenance of each of our aircraft provided by our historian, Mr. Ron Cuskelly. So... Don't forget we're open every day from 10am to 4pm with the exception of Christmas Day and Easter Friday. We'd love to see you. Come and see us soon. And if you've visited us before, come on back. You might find all kinds of things have changed and developed since you were there last. Bye for now. <laughs>